As more and more workplaces are opening up, we're now in phase three here in British Columbia. Many of us who have been working from home for the past, gosh, 100 days or more are looking forward to returning to work. But according to some recent numbers, only 14% of British Columbians currently working from home understand how we will return to the office. Here to help sort it all out and perhaps give us a hint or two uh, is Sean Forkin. Mr. Forkin is Vice President and Country Manager with VMware Canada. Mr. Forkin, Sean, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, Stern. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, Sean. Tell us a little bit about VMware Canada before we dive into these numbers and look for some solutions. So we're, um, you know, a software company with uh, roughly 500 employees here in Canada. So we're grappling with a lot of the issues around going back to work like many other companies are. Mm -hmm. Um, We do have kind of an interesting uh, position in the market in that uh, we offer a set of technologies that helps enable uh, work from home and uh, supports both small businesses and large businesses to make sure that they can serve up that technology very seamlessly and, and help create a, you know, a good work-at-home experience. Oh, we've definitely got the right guy on the phone here, Sean. There's no question about it. Your company actually makes stuff for people to make working from home even easier and smoother in terms of connectivity and security and the ability to be productive at home, uh, as productive at home as you were in the work place. How many of your people these days are working from home, Sean? Oh, all 100%. So we're, um, we're operating a mandatory work from home policy. Um, we're still in phase two here in Toronto. So we're now just starting to, you know, get ready for what that next phase is going to look like. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, um, it's, you know, it's really fundamentally changed how we think about work over these past few months. No question you know, about it. Uh, not only is there the sort of the technology consideration struggling, but the, the, the broader issues around how do you maintain uh, culture and employee engagement and, you know, how do you lead and manage during these difficult times has been something that we've all been kind of, you know, grappled with and trying different things as, yeah. as we've gone through you know, these last few months. In question, uh, I, and you've got a lot of corporate clients that I'm sure you've been making a, a, a lot of, keeping you rather busy over the last uh, three or more months, uh, keeping their employees uh, technically uh, uh, right up to speed and doing the best work possible from home. But I'll bet you in conversations with a lot of those clients Sean, you're having discussions and and you hear it all the time. All of this empty office space that's now literally been empty for a hundred plus days. And yet the company's operations are by and large intact. So the company at the board level is suddenly going, gosh, look at the overhead we're pouring out to uh, secure all of these uh, high-priced uh, spaces in big towers downtown. Our people are are doing almost as well as they did when they were at, at the workplace. Are we going to need this big a workplace going forward? It's the size of the square footage and the amount of square footage involved. Are you hearing that from your clients, Sean? All of them. So it, it, this has been a watershed moment that is going to fundamentally change, uh, you know, the, the workplace as we know it. Um, it, it, we believe will be less, right. And, and just how much less, um, you know, time will tell. Right. Um, I think there's, you know, what, what companies are grappling with is, is not only sort of the, the cost element of this, but also kind of being able to attract a broader talent pool to roles. 
Uh, one of the examples, we, I was talking to a colleague in the U.S. recently, and, and, and if you can imagine, you know, working in the city of New York where, you know, property is so expensive, mm. right, and you were, you know, running procurement for the city and you have to live there. And, and now, you know, with this technology, that you don't need to live in, in the city of New York or even the state of New York. You could be in Des Moines mm-hmm. where, you know, the cost of living is lower and, and maybe you might be able to find far better talent. And, and, you know, the same will apply here in Canada. You know, the best, you know, best individual for a role in Vancouver or Ottawa can be you know, really based anywhere um, as long as they've got, you know, kind of the right tools and technology in place. Interesting. So it's it's, it's going to be interesting for us in terms of, um, you know, attracting and retaining talent as well going forward. Well, that's what I was that's what I was hoping you, you, you lead us to, because yesterday we had a conversation about this, too. There's a story, and I'm sure you've seen it, coming out of San Jose in the Silicon Valley, where, again, some of those really super duper high price technology hubs. Uh, where all of their employees are extremely well paid, in part, Sean, because it's really expensive to live anywhere near where their offices are, uh, like Vancouver, like Toronto, uh, their super high-priced real estate areas. So now, with the pandemic and with more and more people working from home, we're starting to hear from big Silicon Valley companies that, yes, this notion of keeping our employees at home is quite appealing. Thank you very much much, but it's also reasonable that part of that staying at home package may in future involve a pay cut. Have you heard that? I've, I've heard that. Um, you know, I, I've, I, my personal belief in this is, is you're going to see, you know, kind of the, you know, the laws of supply and demand kick in. Um, you know, technology continues to be at the fore of really almost every industry and and we're all grappling with uh just not enough talent right and and it doesn't matter what role we're looking for so um i think the market will dictate you know what you know what ends up happening um to uh towards incomes in in the longer term yeah Um, but i i I do believe that this technology is going to allow you to cast up you know a broader net and a a bigger net for talent which is which is going to be good for you know diversity for you know for innovation uh, you know, as we as we uh, as we you know move uh, move out of this. Certainly, while, you know, you must uh, obviously acknowledge the uh, real estate realities of your employees, particularly if you're living in the Silicon Valley or New York City, for that matter. But, you know, I'm kind of with you on this one, Sean. I think that ultimately uh, the marketplace will determine those details. And if you're a very, very productive employee who's making a lot of coin for the company from home, I doubt you're going to be considered as as a pay grade reduction if you're productivity level is exactly where it's supposed to be that strikes me as being quite illogical yeah i I would i would completely agree right um you know hopefully what companies do is when they when they look at you know uh opportunities to save on real estate they use that to you know, really reinvest in the business and in their teams and in their talent. Our guest on the line from Toronto is the vice president and country manager with VMware Canada. Sean Forkin is with us. We're talking about the future of work. And we did a little polling here in British Columbia recently, Sean. And 73% polled say they expect to keep working from home after COVID. On top of that, 63% say business travel can be phased out and replaced by video chat. A couple of more numbers for you. Four in five of these 
provisional home workers feel the company trusts they're doing their work from home. And Sean, almost seven in 10 believe their company is perfectly equipped for them to carry on with their duties from home. So the expectation level by a considerable number of people who have pivoted to use the buzzword of the of the year uh, to a home work environment have become well kind of comfortable with it uh, uh, to the point where they're feeling that this could go forward successfully it's strong that's consistent with our research as well um, what what I found interesting uh, based on a survey of uh, the thousand people in Canada we did back in May was that Despite all of that, there's a real vacuum around what is next for employees. Yes. So what we found in BC was, you know, relatively, uh, I think the number was only 25% of received confirmation that this flexible work environment is, is going to be here to stay. And it was only 14% that actually had any sort of communications from, um, you know, from leadership around, uh, around, you know, what's next or what they can expect going forward. And I think this is, you know, a real opportunity to kind of address that vacuum. And, and one of the things that, you know, businesses and industry really do need to step up to. Yeah, it's true. And that's the number we quoted right off the top of our conversation with you, Sean. 14% of British Columbians currently working from home understand how they will return to the office. And it is a lack of communications from the employer down uh, in, in terms of, yes, we're liking it. It's okay. But I, I guess the difficulty is quite simple. It's 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 impossible to predict the future uh, during a pandemic, even though some companies are rearranging themselves. Our company, Chorus, for example, has canceled all travel. We've been doing video chats now, again, for 100 plus days. We have guys who work here in Vancouver, Sean, who are on the road four out of every five days. Typically, they haven't been on a plane for 100 days. So the, the whole model is changing. But in terms of communicating that to the employee, filtering it down, it's it's quite thin so far, and you can't blame the employers for not being able to predict the future, but I suppose you could recommend more attempts at communication to begin with, right? Correct. And I think, you know, you're now starting to see uh, the next iteration of technology and the role that it's going to play in the office, right? Um, you know, you would have, you know, you would have heard what the federal government's planning around contact tracing as an example, uh, you know, when we're doing it at the national level, uh, there's now lots of work being done in terms of how that is going to be managed in the buildings and, 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 uh, and in businesses as people begin to, you know, kind of gradually go back to work in kind of a phase manner, which is, which is how we see things playing out where you bring back maybe 25% of your staff initially and, and, and gradually bring it back to 50. Um, but technology is going to play a key role, both in, in terms of supporting you know, working from home and remote working, um, but also, you know, what life is going to be like when we go back into uh, into an office eventually. Here's a couple of stranger numbers for you. Uh, people, uh, you were talking about the culture, simply going to the office or going to the workplace. Uh, people do miss that. 67% of people polled, this is quite recent too, miss interacting with their co-workers and the weirdest number of all 44 percent miss their commute that one i simply don't get but i do get the two out of three missing uh the interacting with co-workers part that's pretty pretty human isn't it it is uh i gotta tell you sterling i am so looking forward to going back to the office again i'm i'm in that camp where uh where i do miss it um, I, I don't miss the air travel, but you know that that kind of comes with the territory. Sure. I was one of those people who probably did you know seventy or eighty thousand miles a year, but 
um, I do miss that, that, that human contact. And I know, you know, the teams in the West that, you know, have you know, started to do things like a socially distant lunch with their team just to try and, you know, maintain that, that, you know, that level of human interaction, which, you know, is going to be, I think, critical for, uh, you know, for many of us as, as we come out of this. It's a, it's a big part of, you know, how we lived our, our daily lives. And, and, uh, and it's, I think, something that, you know, for our, you know, our physical and our mental health, we're, uh, we're all looking forward to. Back to your number, 14% of BC workers currently not understanding how they may return to the office, how those dots will be reconnected. That's a pretty low level in terms of communication. You talk to their bosses, their employers a lot. What's the reluctance beyond the obvious, which is an inability to successfully predict much these days, but are there any other reasons employers are reluctant to have those conversations about the future of work within their organization? Um, you know, I don't know what the reluctance is. Uh, you know, I can I can speak from personal experience. I I regularly you know update update my teams. I use technology to do it. I you know I cut a kind of a three to five minute video every week and, and tell people what the current status of the plan is relative to you know reopening offices. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think that you know the 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 real goal in this is to address the vacuum. You can't you can't not communicate anything. You need to be out there and in front of this as as leaders. You know, just explaining to your your teams and your organizations, you know, where you're at relative to planning. Um, you know, recognizing that you know it's it's somewhat a dynamic situation. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I go back to you know the way we're you know way we're handling it is there's going to be a mix of you know kind of physical scheduling in terms of capacity, and then you know a level of technology that's going to get deployed to make sure that we're you know we're doing the right things and creating a safe environment for for our employees when we when we do go back to work. Okay, I've got to get you to crystal ball gaze for us, Mr. Forkham, for a second or two, because you're with a software company that specifically has done rather well during this connect the dots time from people working from home to their old jobs and making companies' wheels continue to turn in the right direction. So talk to us a little bit about what you foresee as future connectivity in terms of people wanting to and therefore being granted the right to remain at home, but nonetheless being expected to be right up to speed with everybody else in their unit. Um, I, I think that world somewhat has existed today, Sterling. It's not, it's not really that far in the future. Um, you know, people talk about, you know, we used to talk about work-life balance is now, you know, kind of work-life integration. Mm-hmm. And the technology is is there, right? And what we've what we've seen, you know, so many organizations when this when the pandemic first hit it was a bit of a flood, right? We we needed to set up a you know what we would refer to as a virtual desktop for for somebody to use at home to give them access to their core business application. That's right. Yep. Uh, that, that was kind of step one, and then step two was all of a sudden the human factors kicked in. So it wasn't wasn't you as one individual running a Zoom session. It was you doing Zoom and your partner, your your spouse doing Zoom uh, for work, and then your kids trying to either do telework or playing video games. And and all of a sudden your experience was horrible. And so you know you had to kind of you know work with your networking team to kind of go fix that. And then in in the world of cyber, right, that became the next sort of conversation that people kicked in, which was you know in in the world of cyber we talk about the need to always reduce the attack surface. We talk about we want to make this small as possible. So it's hard for, for, you know, for cyber criminals. So to out, out of, sorry to interrupt, Sean, but out of necessity, yeah. again, uh, the future has arrived. Correct. I have to leave it there. And I'm grateful for your time on a Sunday, Sean Fork. And great to meet you. We'll have to do this again. I enjoyed our conversation very much, sir.
Thank you, Sterling. Have a great day. You too. Sean Forkin joining us from Toronto, Vice President and Country Manager, that would be for Canada, with VMware Canada. The notion of contact tracing is very much in the news these days. Lots of discussions about it and many aspects of the discussion focusing on privacy issues. A lot of people understand the principle of contact tracing, but aren't entirely comfortable with all of the details. Many of that discomfort or much of that discomfort having to do with privacy matters. So with that in mind, the discussion continues on a Sunday morning, courtesy of Faye Arjumundi, the woman they call the fixer over there at Mimic Technologies. Faye is the CEO and founder of the company Mimic Technology here in Vancouver. Faye, good morning and welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about Mimic Technologies. You're the founder of the company. You uh, you own 12 patents. You at one time were running three companies, one of which became Mimic. Tell us about Mimic and, and the story behind it. Yes, thank you. Yes, Mimic is a software infrastructure, software platform that extends the cloud to the edge. So we're pioneer in hybrid edge cloud platform. What it means, it means that it uh, with our software as part of the application, when you download it on your device, your device is now a cloud server, which means that the data can remain on your device and get processed on device. And the application communication with some of its backend elements now remains on the same device. So you don't always go to a cloud. Uh, and also application to application communication uh, remains in peer to peer fashion. Uh, so instead of going through a third party and coming back in or, or, or sending your data to a cloud, everything remains on device and the communication happens uh, locally between uh, amongst devices. Cloud, some function still exists in the central cloud as we know it, uh, but uh, it's global function and is more for, uh, for uh, authorization than seeing uh, the data uh, uh, about you. Uh, so that's what Mimic is, is a platform that uh, is available for application developers across the industry, it's not specific to COVID-19. Uh, we have 11 patents on the technology. Right. Uh, we have uh, 11 uh, that is issued, 11 patents that is uh, pending, and more than hundreds in making. So it's how long has the company been around, Faye? Uh, the company has been around for uh, close to 11 years, uh, nine and a half years in a stealth mode. Uh, we were developing the software quietly because it's disruptive. It's the next evolution of cloud and next evol- uh, to enable uh, the next generation of applications. So it is, uh, it's been... Uh, uh, it's been around for uh, 10 years in quiet, but then for the past uh, 16, 15, 16 months, uh, we have been uh, uh, promoting the platform. It's commercially available, and we have uh, dozens of customers uh, that uh, are using enterprise customers that are using uh, their, their platform across their sector. The most important thing is that Hybrid Edge is the most uh, secure technology available to today 
to protect the user data. Ah, okay. So that's 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 what I was coming to. The hybrid edge cloud company is what you call yourself, at least on the website. And you've got a client base based on the fact that you are able to provide uh, this uh, this service to devices uh, and in a very very secure pattern. Correct. This is this is why business is now taking off. And again, this this all began very quietly for a long time, but you've been out there in the marketplace for a couple of years. So the client base that you've established, Faye, was, is, or at least that you had a solid client base prior to the pandemic. Now, since that has come along, how has that affected business? Has it indeed uh, multiplied the activity level? The demand for our platform generally has increased mainly because uh, what our platform provides to other enterprises that they're developing their application with Nimic is that you reduce the cost of operation, you reduce your cost of cloud, uh, you reduce the latency of communication, uh, you improve the data privacy. And all these three elements are the uh, elements that right now more than ever is a necessity for the customers, for the enterprises, because mm-hmm. obviously cost is of a huge burden given the economy uh, and also given the massive shift to use of digital solution. Uh, all by sudden, everything is digital and everything is online, so cost of operation is very important latency of communication is very important and obviously because there's a huge uh, uh, one of the major sectors that's been impacted with digital and everything is all by sudden digital is generally healthcare sector mm-hmm. yes and in healthcare data privacy is extremely important and also now with covid with contact tracing data privacy is of essence. So we're getting a lot of inquiry from the different enterprises, enterprise sector, for using our technology. Uh, We've also been embraced by Amazon uh, Web Services. So they have fast-tracked us in their partner program, and they are listing Mimic as their marketplace for other enterprises, to, for their customer, Amazon customer, to now utilize uh, our platform uh, in uh, in conjunction with Amazon Web Services. Interesting stuff. So now you talk about uh, the, you make the cloud larger, more scalable, more efficient. Uh, uh, you make apps more interoperable. You reduce development time and hosting costs. You save network bandwidth. You reduce the latency that you were talking about. And importantly here, improve data privacy. Now, back to the notion of contact tracing, Faye, because as uh, it's certainly uh, a, a, tech, a tactic, rather, a strategy that is at play all over the world uh, and uh, with varying degrees of success, but everywhere it's been employed, it has produced a level of success. Here in Canada, the discussion is still very much underway and uh, privacy, personal privacy, seems to be the deal breaker. What do you hear, uh, not necessarily from clients, but from individuals who are after, uh, who, who appreciate the principle of, of uh, contact tracing, but do have very real privacy concerns? 
Absolutely, absolutely, because we don't want our data uh, to turn into an infection, infection against our identity. Right. Uh, and at the same time, uh, we know that contact tracing and testing are important uh, in order to deal with the current COVID-19 situation yes. and be able to reopen the economy. Uh, so um, the, the key thing with, with utilizing for users, and I always put myself in the shoes of consumer because I am a consumer myself. Mm -hmm. uh, in order for us to utilize a solution, we want to make sure that our data remains uh, private. Uh, and that's part of the adoption. Uh, in order for this application to be successful, we need between 60% to 80% of the residents or uh, in, a, in any dense population to use the app in order for this to be efficiently running and uh, ah. successfully uh, provide outcome. To, in order to provide outcome, you need to provide peace of mind that your data is always secure. Sure and do. We are not watching you. We are not watching you, right? That's the key. That's They're right. We're not monitoring you. And we don't, uh, we don't get to who this person is throughout the journey of contact tracing. And contact tracing is, to, in my opinion, and a lot of people that we're talking to, is just one feature, right? And the, the feature is about two devices discovering each other and have a reference addressable information of each other's device so that in future, an email or a notification or an alert can be sent to these devices. Correct. Right? And, and, and that's just one part. We have been, because of our hybrid edge cloud technology, naturally, inherently, as part of the platform, and you can see that on our website, we always had this notion of devices discovering each other based on their proximity. Uh, and the moment COVID-19 and contact tracing topic was opened up, this was second or third week of February, we reached out to federal and provincial governments of Canada, uh, proactively informing them that not only we can do contact tracing as part of our platform, but it's with full data privacy of user because the data remains all the time at the device and the communication between user and application remains in on the device and the community alert between the users and, and the contacts right. is also done with, from the device. Faye, I, I need to take so, uh, Faye, uh, I need to take a break here, but I, I can't let you, I can't do it before you, you tell us because you approached the government of Canada and governments at other levels with this technology, this offer of contact tracing technology, and explained how the hybrid edge cloud company can provide this, uh, assuming enough Canadians opt in. Very short uh, answer here, and we'll flesh it out after the break. What did the government say to mimic? Did they give you the thumbs up or? Are they considering your uh, proposal still? What's the status? Uh, it's been a silent status. Oh. Uh, we, have, we, have, we have not uh, heard back uh, from them. 
And uh, we have even presented at the House of Commons on May 21st with IBM and Google that we have also developed an application called Pandemic that they can come and see uh, and discuss this. And we also have all the components around it for questionnaires when you do want to do disease matching and everything that is also done on device. But we have not heard back uh, uh, from uh, to be invited for an assessment and plausibility uh, of our, our platform and our solution. Still on we hold. Still on hold. Indeed. Uh, Mimic, by the way, uh, you can find them online. Mimic is M-I-M-I-K, Mimic.com. Our guest this morning is the CEO of Mimic. And Mimic, here's a a brief description of what they do. Mimic enables all computing devices to act as cloud servers to create a larger and faster cloud with better data, data privacy and lower cost. They call themselves the Hybrid Edge cloud company. Its CEO and founder is Faye Arjumandi. Joining us uh, on this morning, Faye, uh, I, I have to ask you this because it's all over your website. They call you the fixer. Why? <laughs> I have two names, troublemaker and the fixer, uh, mainly because I'm, I'm great at organizing chaos. I think that's, that's my job. Okay. Uh, uh, kind of I'm a, I'm a solution oriented and whenever there's a problem which is the life our lives these days more than ever I, I managed to figure out a path forward and a solution uh, with collaborate and we always uh, get to outcome with collaboration on my team it's not a one-man show ever Indeed. So let's talk a little bit about contact tracing, because uh, which is the focus of our discussion this morning. We've seen, for example, South Korea has proven to the world that this strategy is a superb uh, approach, uh, especially when coupled with testing and all the rest of it. Uh, and it's something, though, that I'm sure you, you pay a lot of attention. You've appeared before the House of Commons trying to convince the government of Canada to adopt this technology because of its privacy uh, aspect. And I've bet you when you sit down and talk to Canadians over a cup of coffee and you talk about contact tracing in principle we get it in 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 practice however a lot of us are really a little nervous okay a lot nervous about surrendering private information that's going where Faye and to be retained by whom and for how long these are legitimate questions Canadians are asking Absolutely, absolutely. And these are exact uh, uh, elements that we are addressing with our platform. Because we believe that generally speaking, across all industry sectors, by the way, it's time that consumers have control of their data. Here, here. You constantly need to be able to see who is accessing your data. And by the way, nobody should be able to access your data. And that was one of the mistakes we made in the mobile internet era. Your data need to remain on your control is your asset. And you have to have the ability to say, I want you to see my data or to copy my data or to have access to which part of data for how long. Right. This is what our platform enables and guarantees. 
right? Because you provide that capability. We call it is almost like imagine you have data in your wallet versus cash in your wallet, and you have to have control of that. Uh, and and uh, no third parties, including government entities, should have the ability to constantly monitoring you and tracing you. The example we give is like imagine you had a break-in in your home. Mm-hmm. You ask law enforcement to come to your place. They come, they take a report. You don't give them the key to your home sure. after uh, they want to leave. And they say, okay, from now on, I'm sitting in a glass house and you guys can see me anything I do mm-hmm. just because I called you in for one time of breaking. That's why data privacy is so important because you want to have the ability to communicate uh, and receive service. But that doesn't mean that you want to be monitored all the time and to give access to all your data and digital assets to people at all the time. So, Faye, and we and only, got a, only got a couple of minutes mm-hmm. left here. And you've, you've appeared before the government of Canada. You've, you've approached them. You've pitched them with this contact tracing approach, this unique Vancouver-based approach. They're still on. You're still on hold. They haven't decided anything. So could the conflict be that under your app, uh, the individual controls exactly how much data he or she will share with the government for the specific purpose of contact tracing and for how long, whereas the government on the other side might want a little more access to a lot more data for an indefinite period of time. Could that be part of the reason the government's dragging its feet on this? Uh, I, I don't, I can't comment on that. Okay, fair um, could, could that be that, or is it because uh, they trust the larger companies like Apple, Google, Shopify, and BlackBerry I suppose. Um, we are concerned that uh, uh, Apple and Google approach is only, uh, 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 it adds contact tracing to the operating system as Prime Minister announced that they, they want to go with Apple, Google, Shopify, and BlackBerry. Uh, our solution is complete, complementary with Apple and Google, and in fact, it addresses their shortcomings and their challenges. And we have made that clear as well. But the issue with Apple and Google today is that it becomes part of the operating system, uh, which is quite scary. Uh, it's not clear whether you can disable that capability. Right. When it's an application, you delete. When it's part of operating system, you don't know what's going on, right? Uh, and, and also, it's not clear that what is the role of one of the largest shopping platform provider shopify uh, uh, and this and, and this is why exactly and i have to leave it there Faye, in the interest of time but this is why this is why canadians are so nervous about this stuff all these monsters uh, in in the data gathering game they sell data for a for a business model uh, we're very and justifiably concerned about this we wish you and mimic considerable success Faye arjamandi thank you so much for being with us this morning Thank you. Thank you. Mimic, M-I-M-I-K dot com. Check it out. It's a local company and a great option. Mario Canseco is the guy at Research Company, one of our favorite poll meisters. Mario, good morning. Welcome to the show. We're going to talk about foreign buyers in Vancouver, Metro Vancouver, BC real estate for that matter. Metro Vancouver being the most expensive part of that. Good morning. (laughs) 
Good morning. Great to be here with you, Ash. It's good to have you with us. Now, foreign uh, buyers, we uh, certainly have had a lot of discussion about this in British Columbia, many, many of them over quite a long period of time, to the point where we now have the foreign buyers tax. We have government legislation recognizing this incursion uh, into our midst from abroad. And you and uh, the research team headed out to uh, sample the opinions on British Columbians of taking this one step further. Further, Mario, the notion of banning foreigners from owning real estate in British Columbia. How did that one work out? Well, it's an interesting situation because we've seen a high level of support for the taxes that the NDP government brought in and also some that the BC Liberals brought in. Uh, lots of residents happy with the idea of this foreign owners tax happening. Uh, also a high level of support for the speculation tax. And we thought, well, we have a situation now because of the COVID-19 pandemic, where we might have a lot of people who are coming in with foreign capital trying to buy places because they have the money to do so. Right. And when we asked BC residents about this, 78% supported having legislation similar to what we have now in place in New Zealand, which essentially does not allow foreigners to buy real estate unless they hold residency status or they are citizens from Australia and Singapore where they have some free trade deals. So high level of support, almost four in five, saying we would like to see this happen. Interesting. So New Zealand, the current setup in New Zealand, which, of course, is probably the only jurisdiction on Earth that is COVID-free, although they did have a bit of a hiccup there a few weeks ago. Nonetheless, uh, the the rules in New Zealand are, in terms of foreign people buying uh, real estate, basically they can't, with a couple of exceptions, like Australians and Singaporeans. But most people... Uh, cannot, under most circumstances, buy any real estate in New Zealand. And you're saying four out of five British Columbians would like to see that same uh, status for our province. Yes, uh, the level of support is uh, quite high. It's even higher than what we see uh, from residents when it comes to the housing taxes that we already have. Uh, What happened in New Zealand was uh, they had a housing crisis, certainly not at the level that we have here in Metro Vancouver. Uh And they essentially said, look, we have a problem here because we have a lot of people who are growing up, who want to get into the market, and they actually can't do this, specifically in areas like Wellington or Auckland. And they thought, well, if we do this, maybe this will even out the situation a little bit, allow people who are uh, getting older, wanting to get into the market, or those who want to get something that is bigger because they are starting a family. And it has worked very well. It's a very popular tax. Uh, They have very... Uh, stringent methods to to essentially keep this going and it hasn't led to any backlash in fact residents of uh, new zealand are quite happy with this tax so as you surveyed british columbians you always make it a point to try and get a representative survey mario you and the crew go out and use uh, use your statistical data to talk to people who represent all spectrums of the population so with that in mind are there any particular age groups or geographical groups in BC that are more for or against banning foreign uh, buyers from real estate purchases here? Well, we have a situation where the region that is most likely to be supportive of this is Vancouver Island at 88%, so definitely a higher uh, number of residents who are happy with this. One thing that was quite striking is uh, the high level of support among residents aged 35 to 54, which is also 88%. So many residents were middle-aged, maybe trying to get into a larger place, 
uh, because they're starting a family or essentially doing things differently, uh, also have that high level of support. But it's quite high across the board. Uh, one of the things that is also interesting to me looking into this is this isn't an issue that is politically motivated. We have a lot of questions that we ask, and you see people who are very supportive of what the NDP government has been doing because they voted for the NDP. Sure. And then you have liberals and Greens who aren't really quite keen on this. On this particular matter, 87% of NDP voters and 81% of BC Liberal voters believe that this is the right course of action. So it's not something that is going to lead to some sort of political backlash when you have voters from two of the major parties essentially saying, we think this is the right way to go. Interesting. So it transcends local politics. So then these people rise above being new Democrats or liberals or conservatives or whatever. But how about this notion, Mario, just in terms of the numbers? Because they're so so remarkable. They're very, very strong. How about all of those people being mostly Canadians in terms of their attitudes towards foreign buyers look at and this representing and I, I am going political on you but in a different way <laughs> this representing some kind of backlash against china in terms no. in terms of 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 the of this the hostage situation we currently find ourselves in 80 percent of canadians are angry at the national government for not standing up to china more boldly uh, and I'm wondering, is there is that sentiment reflected somehow in your polling about foreign buyers here in B.C.? Well, it's something that we've asked before. We asked it in Metro Vancouver uh, a year and a half ago, and this is also one of the motivations that led us to ask it to a B.C.-wide sample. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a lot of people who were quite concerned about what was going on. This is way before COVID-19, way before the Mong Kwan Joe case. And we still saw a lot of support in Metro Vancouver for something like this. Uh, There's definitely a situation now because of COVID-19 where the actual perceptions about China have been dropping. And uh, it's uh, not something that is related to those people who are already here. I think that is one of the major differences uh, that we see here. When I tell Canadians, when I ask Canadians about, uh, you know, referring to the COVID-19 pandemic as the Chinese flu, as Donald Trump has done, uh, many of them say, no, this is not the right course of action. So I think there's a difference in looking into this as an ethnicity matter, right. but also the situation when it comes to foreign capital coming in and making uh, those Canadians or those BC residents who want to get into the real estate market have a tougher time doing so. Mm-hmm. And uh, now we're, of course, with the COVID and all the rest of it, we're taking a look now. Uh, CMHC has been in the picture recently predicting uh, fluctuating, to be kind, housing prices indicating some kind of correction uh, ahead so might these rather negative influences from uh, people or or, or, uh, sources like CMHC uh, be also reflected in people's concerns uh, about foreign buyers oh definitely I think that is one of the reasons for this you know we have seen uh, housing uh, be the number one issue across British Columbia for the past five years yep uh, mostly driven by people in Metro Vancouver and those who are trying to get into the market. Essentially, if you're 18 to 34, you're more likely to believe that housing is the number one issue. The pandemic shifted things a little bit. We saw a little bit more concern about healthcare with the 55 and over demographic, uh, more concerns about economy and jobs with those who are 35 to 54. But if you're 18 to 34, you're still saying that housing is the number one issue for you. So it's a complex matter, particularly politically. We're heading into an election in about a year and and a few months. Right. And uh, it's uh, important for the NDP government to connect on this file. You know, there's a high level of support for the taxes, but they need to be able to show something for it before the next election 
you can head there and say, you know, we've saved all of this money from the taxes. If you're not cutting ribbons in places where BC residents can move, it's not going to be very good for the younger residents to say that you've done the job well. So final question to you, with support ranging from 70 to 80 percent on matters surrounding this, do you see legislation between now and the next provincial election literally banning foreigners from owning BC real estate? It's a tough one for the government. I think they're very happy with the way they've been doing things and the level of support for this taxes definitely shows it. It's a complex matter politically. Uh, you only have about a year to make this happen. Right. And one of the crazy aspects of this is the COVID-19 pandemic. That has definitely shifted the way in which the government is looking into some of the policy-making ideas that they had. If they were to follow through with this, uh, there's definitely a high level of support. There will be some backlash, of course, as it happens with any kind of legislation. Uh, but right now, the emphasis is on COVID, and I think that's the way it'll be for the next six or seven months. Thanks, Mario. Lots of good polling information available at any time at researchco.ca. The boss is Mario Canseco. Thanks for joining. It's always great to have you on the program, Mario. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Our next guest, here's a quote from his latest column. You can understand the NHL wanting to have as much control over their own event as possible, and clearly other jurisdictions will give them more freedom than B.C., But while the NHL has to consider a long list of factors in its return-to-play plan, they need to understand one thing. No matter what they do, the virus calls the shots. The headline to this story is the NHL is taking an unnecessary risk by saying no to Vancouver as a hub city. The article written by the Daily Hive's Rob Williams, man of the people, voice of the fans. Rob is on the phone with us again this morning. Hello there. Hey, Sterling, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. I want to talk about that bizarre lo- uh, the lottery draft thing in a couple of minutes, but let's stick with the, sh- the, the column that's uh, in the Daily Hive today, Rob. Uh, we know that uh, the NHL turned us down, and the reason simply was what happens when a player gets sick? The rules in BC are shut the whole thing down for 14 days, and the NHL just wasn't ready to deal with that, were they? Yeah, no, I mean, we don't know the exact details of, of what, you know, where that threshold is, but obviously Vancouver's uh, threshold was was earlier than what the NHL would, would have liked or, and what they've been hearing from other jurisdictions. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a bizarre uh, situation because, um, you know, on, on the one hand, I, you know, we can understand why the NHL, you know, why they would want to have as much freedom as possible. But on the other hand, like the, the, the main threat to the NHL season and, and, and to the, to their business in the next few months is going to be, um, a, a positive test case. Sure. Getting, getting through their line. And, and I, they, uh, you know, reportedly they, they believe that they can hold that line pretty good and keep a tight bubble in, in Las Vegas, despite, you know, hundreds of new cases well, every single day down there. That's right. Um, and and they're and they're also uh, apparently leaning towards uh, on uh, to towards Toronto and Ontario. Just reported 178 new uh, new cases of of uh, the virus today. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's an unnecessary risk. I I, I really do. I, I think that. Um, you know, they the first and foremost, they need to make sure that that virus does not get into their bubble, and 
you know, by by going with any other places other than Vancouver and Edmonton, I think they're they're taking an unnecessary risk. Yeah, you mentioned Vegas, and I have to ask you just point blank because since we knew that there were going to be two hub cities and there was going to be this format for returning to play for most of the teams, uh, Vegas has has been considered a slam dunk. Well, there'd be Vegas and one other city. That's been sort of the conclusion right from the, the beginning of the conversation. Why does Vegas have such a monopoly on being one of the hub cities? What do you understand it to be? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's twofold. I, in on, on one hand, the fact that Nevada has had a relatively low number of cases uh, by the United States standards, uh, it's one of the lo- it has one of the lowest cases uh, of any state that has an NHL team. Uh, so that's that's one advantage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, and they have a Nevada, few hotels. We'll, we'll appreciate that too. And that's right. Of course, their their hotel infrastructure is obviously unmatched and. And they can provide a, a you know a unique set of um, circumstances for NHL players to keep them keep them busy, keep them occupied, keep them entertained while they are uh, not playing games. So I think that's important as well. But what's happened in the, in the last few weeks, uh, you know, the the situation in Nevada has changed sure has. a bit since they opened their casinos. Obviously. Uh, you know, over a thousand new cases uh, in, at last report in Nevada. So, uh, you know, I, 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 that may change the NHL's mind, and I, and I think that the NHL was smart to to delay their decision and not not just pick whatever looked good um, a month ago and, and to wait. So, yeah, I mean, Nevada, that would make me nervous. So, I, I wonder what the NHL is thinking if they think they can keep a tight bubble, but. Uh, you know, you've got hotel staff, restaurant workers going in and out. Um, you know, there's there's always going to be a possibility of that bubble uh, being compromised. Rob, since the NHL and the Vancouver Canucks announced our city will not be a hub city for all of this stuff, I'm noticing the most uh, common reaction has been not one of, oh, you know, darn it all anyway, oh, rats. But the reaction has been actually one of relief, kind of. Dodge that bullet uh, because we couldn't go to the games anyway. Yeah, I mean, and that's uh, I, that's what I've been seeing as well. And you know, I, I've on on Twitter, you know, it's mostly diehard Canucks fans following me on Twitter, and and even they are just you know, I think there was it was split to begin with. There were there was a group that said like, "Geez, I don't think we really want." this the nhl coming anyways it's not going to do too much for us so so why take on the risk and then even the other group that that wanted it to come to vancouver and thought it would be a good thing uh you know the, the you know if there's somebody that's more popular than elias Pettersson and jacob markstrom in the city of vancouver right now it's it's dr bonnie henry and i think if if the nhl isn't coming to vancouver because uh gary bettman disagrees with with um, Dr. Henry, then you know everyone's going to side side with her right now. So uh, I think that's, I think it's as simple as that. Yeah, and no question. Of course, Gary Bettman, perhaps the least popular sports executive in Canada, <laughs> doesn't help his situation at all. Rob, let's take a couple of minutes, if we can, and take a look at that lotto, the draft lottery on Friday, because on a technicality. 
the Vancouver Canucks are actually still contenders for the number one overall draft pick. The Kings will pick second. Ottawa's got a couple in the top 10 and so on. But because of the nature of the structure of what's left of the season, the uh, what they call a placeholder team actually drew the first pick. But the placeholder team, that team won't be determined until there's another lottery among the losers after what? The first round of the playoffs? Yeah, after that qualifying round, which is that uh, we're going to have 16 teams uh, kind of playing each other. So Vancouver playing against Minnesota. Right. So basically that will determine those, those, that qualifying round will determine if you made the playoffs or if you didn't make the playoffs. So if the Canucks beat Minnesota, they're into the 16 team, uh, you know, the usual 16 team Stanley Cup tournament. Right. If they lose, it's like they missed the playoffs. Aha. And so the four loser teams uh, will have, what, a 25% chance each of getting the first round pick overall? Yeah. So there's going to be, there's going to be eight, uh, eight, eight teams will lose. Oh, eight teams. Right. Sorry. So right. Four, yeah. Four I should never do math on the radio. Right? <laughs> so, this, so uh, yeah, conceivably, it, you know, if the, if the Canucks lose to Minnesota, they will have a one in eight chance at the first overall draft pick. And that is a huge jump in in their chances that you know if if they had just missed the playoffs uh they would have had a you know a one to two percent chance of, of winning the first overall pick but because uh you know one of these these placeholder teams uh won the draft lottery now they're they're going to determine who that team is by you know waiting waiting it evenly for all of all of these qualifying these qualifying team losers are all going to are all going to get a chance to to pick uh, first overall. And that this year, that's Alexi Lafreniere, and he's uh, you know supposedly uh, he played in the World Juniors uh, in Vancouver here, um, you know as as an underage player, and he's supposed to be a franchise player. Uh, so that would be a massive, massive uh, win for whoever gets it. And you're now seeing online there's, there's there's fans that are conflicted. They don't know if they want the Canucks to beat Minnesota That's right. or have a have a shot at, at at that number one pick because that would be a real game changer for they, whoever gets it. That's right. They say this Lafreniere kid is the next Crosby, the next McDavid. He's just that good. Always a pleasure to have Rob Williams on board. Rob's the sports editor over at the Daily Hive. Just looking at leagues that, uh, you know, could be playing and that are playing. So we got the checklist here. So you have Taiwanese, Japanese, and Korean baseball. Check. They're back in action. European soccer, Rob. Check. Back in action. And then you get NHL, MLS, CFL, NBA. No checks. No action. So far, all of them have plans to one degree or another. Just looking at the big picture, what is the likelihood of any or all of these leagues actually getting underway? Yeah, no, I, I think they're all going to get underway. I think that, um, I mean, barring, barring a, it, would, it would take a, a, a major outbreak uh, within a team, within a league to really halt operations. Uh, and what's going to be, you know, vitally important is is keeping keeping a tight bubble for um, for these teams. So for the NBA and the MLS, both of which are going to be uh, getting underway in the in the next month in Orlando at, at Disney World, I think 
yeah, keep that keep that that bubble tight and, and ensure that that your players are healthy when they enter the bubble. Right, that's going to be vitally important. And I think the the NHL has got the the, the same issue, uh, you know. And hopefully, they're going some places that are safer than than Florida right now. Um, so I, I have confidence that those those will get underway. And and um, you know, I, I I'm I, I, I want to say that I that I think it'll that that the season will be completed. And I, I, I guess I think I do. I just, but it, this is just so unprecedented. So, I mean, I, it's almost, you know, hard to un, to understand, okay, well, like, how is it going to get underway and, and how is it all going to proceed? I mean, I suppose they're, they're playing soccer right now in Spain and Italy. So in England, and England so yeah. if, if, if they can do it there, I, I suppose that they can do it here. Um, the part, the one that makes me the most nervous is major league baseball because the plan right now is for for teams to be flying around to different cities and and going home to their families and you know there's there's not much of a of a bubble there and and the way the that cases are surging across the United States you know that makes me a little bit nervous but um, but yeah otherwise it's it's going to be uh, vitally important that they get healthy players into the bubble and, and do whatever they can to keep the virus out. Yeah, I was watching uh, so one of the Seattle stations and they had a feature on the Mariners. And of course, they were working out at Safeco Field. Just nice to see a picture of Safeco Field after, what, almost a year. Uh, and the players, some of the players were out and just going through light drills, that sort of thing, uh, talking about the upcoming season and all the rest of it. But then, uh, again, the the and they're saying the Mariners will play 40 teams or 40 games against American League teams and uh, 20 against National League teams. Now they will be flying around, but within regional, uh, they won't be flying to Florida or New York, but they might be flying to Los Angeles or San Francisco. Again, keeping within a geographical uh, region, Rob, but they're still going to be flying. And as you say, they're still going to go home and they're still going to try and keep it as normal as possible rather than the isolation approach, which so many other sports are taking. That appears to be, I think, a much riskier just from the get go approach. Absolutely, yeah, and I mean the 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 key difference with with uh, Major League Baseball compared to uh, to the NHL and the NBA is that their season is just starting. So yeah. I think the the idea of requiring the entire league, you know, being in a bubble until October, you know, rather than just you know whatever team goes to the to the Stanley Cup final having to to do that. Back us up to the White a bit unusual. Back us yeah, up to the yeah. Whitecaps a little bit because you're a big fan there too, and you go to a lot of the games, and they have a strong and very loud Vancouver fan base. Uh, we're in a we're in a group with our arch rival Seattle uh, in this tournament coming up in Florida at the uh, ESPN uh, Wide World of Sports Complex. After it's a wonderful idea. It's the format is basically the World Cup format, except all of the teams are all of the teams in the North American Soccer League (MSL), and they will all play this uh, elimination tournament. And then is the plan, Rob, to come back home and have the White Caps playing at BC Place and all the other teams playing in their home uh, pitches? It is right now, and and yeah, that that plan. I don't know if that's going to end up coming to fruition. That you know, I I think that. Vancouver's in a place that uh, that's pretty good right now, and, mm-hmm, and yeah. that uh, that they they you know they they could have games at, at BC Place, and and I think they could safely invite fans into BC Place and, and have them spread or spread around the stadium, which which they've some other leagues around the world have been doing similar things. But are you you know then you're going to be requiring 
teams coming in and out of the United States, uh, both the Whitecaps and the team that they're playing. Um, you know, that again, that, that makes me nervous. And I don't know if uh, Canada is going to be having a uh, wide open border at that point. And, uh, and certainly the, the teams would have to, would have to isolate. They wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, they'd have to do as the NHL is doing and have a sort of a bubble environment. Exactly. Arriving. I, I think MLS, that, that's, a, you know, especially difficult for, for a league like MLS that doesn't have the same resources that the NHL and the NBA have. So, uh, yeah, if, if, I, if I were to, to, to bet what's going to happen with MLS is that we see this summer tournament and, um, you know, unless there's a real... Um, you know, a real drop in cases across the United States. I don't see any way that they're going to be able to to complete a season uh, beyond that. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. Now, the league that is on my list that is so far the quietest in terms of satisfying local fans, and in this case, I'm talking about BC Lions fans, Rob. The CFL is still, I mean, they've, they've pitched. We know uh, we did a piece on the program here a month or so ago with a former Lions president, Frank Giliotti, joined us to talk about whether or not the feds ought to cough up whatever amount, hundred plus million dollars to save the league and that sort of thing. And that's really contentious. But they're not talking much at all about their season, about their training camps. I saw uh, something in the paper the other day about uh, some of the Lions players worried about actually being able to uh, economically stick around because the, there's not a lot of money flowing, that sort of thing. So what do you hear, you sports insider, you, about the CFL? <laughs> yeah, I, I, just the same as you. I'm, we're not hearing a lot coming from uh, coming from the CFL They've, uh, they've talked about how they would like to have uh, perhaps an, an eight-team league, or an, sorry, <laughs> a, <laughs> they have a nine-team league. league, but an eight-game season mm-hmm. uh, rather than their usual 18 and started after Labor Day, um, you know, perhaps at, at a uh, centralized hub. Uh, there's some there's some key advantages to, to the CFL um getting their season going, but there's also some key disadvantages. And I would list their advantages in that all the teams are in Canada. Sure, so you yeah. don't have the cross-border uh, issues. So you can bring everyone back and, and uh, have them quarantine for 14 days, and then away you go and have your season. That's right. Uh, again, you only have those eight games to play. So, you, you know, you could... You know, this wouldn't be multiple months necessarily, you know, you know, not much beyond two months of keeping players in a, uh, you know, in a bubble environment. Uh, but of course, the disadvantage is football has an enormous amount of players. Uh, there's not much social distancing when they're on, <laughs> when they're to on the say field. The least, yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, the, the finances of the league, the CFL is not, um, does not have the same television contract that the NHL and the NBA have, for instance, and uh, so they rely a lot more on on having uh, having bums in seats, and, you know, selling tickets and, and concession and all that and all the rest. So, yeah, the CFL is in, in a tricky spot, but I do think it would be in their their uh, best interest to try to get a season uh, of some kind uh, completed this year. Well, here we are at the end of another chat, simply remaining where we've been for quite a few while now. Fingers crossed, let's hope somebody plays something so we can talk about it, right? We're getting close. Yes, we are. Rob, thanks for this. Good to have you with us again. 
Yeah, anytime. Thanks, John. Sterling Fox with you, joined on the line by David Harris. Mr. Harris is a lawyer and director of the intelligence program at Insignis Strategic Research, which is located in Ottawa. He is also a former officer with CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. David Harris, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Thank you very much, Sterling. We're here to talk about Canada, China, and uh, some developments since you and I last spoke a couple of months ago, David. Most recently, of course, just a few days ago, with the Prime Minister most emphatically declaring Canada will not be involved in a prisoner swap, as suggested by the Chinese government, for the two Michaels and Meng Wanzhou. What did you make of the Canadian decision? Well, uh, particularly in light of some of the ambiguous conduct on the part of the Canadian government with respect to China, this was really, I thought, a tremendously positive signal, not merely to Canadians to focus on the adversary relationship we have with China, but also as a signal first to China, but also to any number of other countries and uh, groups that might contemplate going into the business of taking Canadians as hostage with a view to some kind of rich reward at the other end of their rainbow. Did you, were you surprised by this at all? And we've seen some pretty strong numbers, uh, upwards of 80% of Canadians, David, over the past couple of months expressing, expressing rather great dissatisfaction with the performance of the Canadian government vis-a-vis China, basically saying, you know, we should get a backbone. And uh, so it, with that kind of groundswell of strong support, you knew that we had to do something. So the, it was inevitable, but nonetheless, uh, I think a lot of people took uh, some relief that, uh, that we had at least established a strong position somewhere along the way. Yes, and I think very helpful in this has been the increasing prominence of uh, any number of Chinese Canadians who are essentially saying enough. They know, as Chinese Canadians, as people with significant, often profound connections in China, Mm -hmm. exactly what the modus operandi of the regime is there. And, of course, these Chinese Canadians have been exposing, as perhaps no other individual or group has been capable of exposing, the extensive and aggressive influence operations, intelligence operations, and so on, that Beijing has been conducting for years in Canada, prominently among, it's tragic to say, some of our most pronounced political and business elites, so as to bend our national security, our economic, our foreign policy in favor of the dictatorship in that country. Yeah, they call it elite capture. It's a very specific, very, very thoroughly thought through program. How long has it in fact been under implementation? How long has this scheme been working? Well, as a phenomenon uh, worldwide, the uh, Chinese regime for really generations has been approaching life internationally in this way. It follows, in many regards, the tradition, I was going to say grand tradition, of the former Soviet Union. And it was at the knee of uh, Soviet intelligence that a good number of the leaders of the Chinese Revolution and later learned their uh, techniques, uh, the Soviet NKVD, uh, the monstrous secret police Mm -hmm. of the time, uh, was able to convey these kinds of lessons that went from uh, the 
unsubtle approaches to shooting people in the basements of public buildings onto, of course, the elegant and subtle manipulations of foreign thinking, disinformation, and so on abroad. And Canada, as I say, has been a, an increasing target of this kind of thing. A lot of it has been sponsored by a department, uh, an enterprise called the United Front Work Department of uh, the uh, Chinese intelligence uh, organization. Right. And what this uh, does in a number of regards is it uh, can bring together a variety of interests and elements in an almost spider's web kind of approach. And going back to thousands of years, the uh, Chinese philosopher of war, Sun Tse, uh, I remember culminated some discussion about intelligence type activity by talking about something he called the divine skein. In other words, the, the innumerable threads that uh, he would want to see developed in order to capture all manner of interests of the then regime, mm-hmm. of course, a semi-monarchical one. Anyway, we see the modern version of this where we find uh, people, say, in business, in Canada, uh, being invited for uh, paid vacations, paid speaking tours, and so on. We've had Canadian judges and lawyers uh, make trips to China ostensibly to uh, address and maybe contribute to the democratizing of the Chinese legal regime, which, of course, is a a really quite pronounced farce uh, as these things go, because the whole Chinese legal regime is perforce an arm of the Chinese executive, which is to say the dictatorship. Right. So you've, you've got all of these kinds of things, but the objective really is, of course, not to inform in that way uh, any kind of Chinese officialdom. Rather, it is to seduce the uh, opinion makers and other high-profile influential people in Canada so that uh, they may perhaps uh, facilitate the bringing of other people to China. Uh, You see business people in this kind of way where uh, special deals can be arranged or facilitated by inevitably government-connected businesses or enterprises, and on and on it goes. And when you have a totalitarian country, unlike in the Western democracies, you can actually make these things work very efficiently because, again, you have complete control of all of the levers, um, the, the financial benefits and so on. And as China becomes really rather wealthy mm-hmm. in many regards, it means they have a capacity that has been in some ways unseen since, uh, say, the United States and its intelligence organizations were able successfully and, of course, for very different purposes, to uh, influence a variety of international activity in, I think, largely constructive regards. Uh, the group that uh, the prime minister, prior to his making his announcement that we're not going to get into this prisoner swap business, there was a presentation made to him, David, by uh, yes. a group of Canadian elites. Uh, interesting that we would have this following the, your, your description of elite capture. Nonetheless, uh, former judges, former diplomats, former members of cabinet, former politicians uh, united uh, to uh, share uh, their thoughts uh, as they insisted or certainly would urged the prime minister basically to capitulate, which he refused to do. Would that, what was your take on the group who tried to influence the prime minister's decision? Were they captives? It's a, an interesting question, and uh, I don't remember the names of all those involved, but I do remember 
that they were people who have or had had significant influence on Canadian policy and at large, a very powerful group. Yes. When, when you see a development like this in light of what we've discussed and certainly what uh, many Chinese, Canadians and uh, defectors from the intelligence organizations of China have told us, it seems to me that we should all, and it wouldn't be difficult, but especially including media, sit down with each name on a given petition and try to work out whether there might be some connections that could explain this proclivity that an individual might have in the face of what I would suggest is all reality and all reasonable evidence to uh, come up with an approach, a recommendation that could only be favorable to the Communist Party of China, namely the idea in this particular case of working a... um, a kidnap deal, which is what we're talking about, responding to a kidnapping of uh, our citizens uh, with some kind of payoff, uh, with uh, taking a knee, shall we say, before a totalitarian dictatorship, and thereby entering a dramatic new phase in Canadian international life, where each of our citizens, no matter how lowly, may find themselves one day being viewed as mere currency. Yeah for terrorists or foreign regimes wanting to uh, show that they can break us and make some money, perhaps, in the process. So it it would be very important for us to look at this. There are various business organizations that are close to China. There are even some, uh, shall we say, legislative parliamentary organizations that go under the name of friendship organizations that may have among them people who uh, may be as busy playing up to Chinese interests as anything else. And so this is something we have to watch very carefully. We need to pass legislation, as the Australians have done, in responding to precisely this kind of threat that would redouble our national security efforts and capacity to name and shame and indeed, where appropriate, prosecute individuals operating knowingly as influence agents. I say knowingly, I mean, speaking as, as a lawyer, it is important that there be a, a certain awareness available, but we could expand the required level of awareness necessary for a prosecution by also talking about uh, recklessness. So in other words, one needn't be motivated by a highly calculated, uh, extensive determination to benefit China. They may just be, may just be good enough to prosecute them for being reckless for... Uh, what they ought to have known as reasonable people. And this would very quickly send a message, as it has done, it appears from public reports in Australia, where an Australian senator seems to have been, according to public reports, compromised by an extremely wealthy, I think, China-based individual, a businessman, who may have contributed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, to the senator's campaign, political campaign and threatened to withdraw that money in response to which threat it is said that the senator then suddenly embraced all kinds of pro-Chinese dictatorship policy. So the Australians, and, uh, 
have stepped up and they've enacted some legislation to, uh, well, basically uh, not prohibit, but certainly make that sort of involvement more difficult in the future. David Harris is with us. Mr. Harris is with Insignis Strategic Research in Ottawa. He's also a former CSIS officer. And uh, David, just uh, looking at uh, some notes here uh, from a recent National Security Review by your old outfit, CSIS, quote, for years, the Canadian Security and Intelligence Service has investigated and reported on the threat of foreign interference, but unlike Canada's Western intelligence allies, Ottawa hasn't responded with strong countermeasures. This goes to the point you were making just before we took the break about Australia, one of our intelligence allies, uh, which has taken a very strong position against China. What would you like to see Canada do replicating what Australia has already done? Well, as uh, I think we were discussing earlier, we have, uh, of course, the opportunity of bringing in laws or uh, toughening up laws, including those in our criminal code, that would uh, provide for severe, very clear uh, prosecution options against people who have uh, betrayed their country. And let's uh, start now to use plain English. That's what we're talking about. They seem, some people, to be prepared to benefit themselves at the expense of their fellow Canadians and perhaps at the risk to the fate of Canada's own sovereignty. Uh, so we have to have penalties in proportion to the stakes involved and the, shall we say, guilty knowledge, to use a legal expression, of those implicated. The Australians have applied themselves in this kind of way. And uh, the messaging as one of the functions of criminal law can be very helpful when you have this kind of law with all the publicity that goes with it. And uh, as I was noting earlier, it struck me as very significant that there has been a reported reduction in the kinds of activity that one might consider to be influence activity. And this is a, a phenomenon, influence activity, that's already recognized in Canadian law, in the Canadian uh, Security Intelligence Service Act, the mandate of the CSIS. You have a clear reference to this, and on it goes. So this is one important element, and it is really vital because we're talking frequently about people who may have some level of influence, yes, but that can translate into control of the levers of power in this country. They may have ways of shaping opinions. It may not necessarily be current or former ministers of the Crown, yeah. though there have been concerns about such people, um, you know, who graduate from uh, playing politics to uh, playing international uh, benefit, shall we say. And, uh, you know, they mix with their former colleagues, uh, maybe their former colleagues come to see by example how wealthy former colleagues have become by playing the game by China. And so they get the message that if while ministers of the crown or MPs, they uh, help facilitate uh, Chinese influence activity, they too themselves can have waiting for them upon retirement, maybe even before some uh, immense amounts of wealth. So this is the kind of thing that's got to be really brought to the attention of officials in Canada, uh, including elected officials, business people, 
Uh, and, you know, when we talk about politicians, that even goes down to mayors and others. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I have to leave it there, David. I'm fresh out of time, but I'm, I'm grateful for yours. An abundance of really important material to think about. A, a, a banquet of food for thought this morning from you, Mr. <laughs> Harris. As always, a pleasure to have you on the program. We appreciate your insight. We will do this again. Thank you very much. Always, always a pleasure, Sterling. Take care. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.